Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 38 through 47. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is God's word. Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll keep them open to John chapter 8 as we pray together, as we open God's Word together this morning. God, this is a truly humbling passage uh, and one that strikes at the heart of uh, the corruption uh, that is in the world. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of this passage, and that we might receive it with joy. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, this morning, we come to what is, for many people, the most challenging, most difficult, most offensive text in the book of John. Uh, We've just heard it read, and you don't need me to explain to you why this passage is hard for many people to accept. So hard in fact, that many people refuse to accept it at all. There are many people who read this passage and simply refuse to, uh, to accept its authenticity. They read the book of John and they get to this passage and they say, no way would Jesus ever say something like that. No way would he say something that would be so devastating and so controversial. No way would he say something that's so offensive as that. If you look back to the beginning of chapter 8 in the book of John, to the passage that we actually skipped in our study of this book, um, you'll notice that the first 11 verses of chapter 8 are in in brackets in your Bible, or at least I hope they are in your Bible. And that's because there's significant and convincing evidence that the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 are not original to this book. They were wedged in at some point later, scholars think. There's consensus that this is likely a real moment from Jesus's life, 
Uh, but scholars believe that based on the archaeological evidence of the literal hundreds and hundreds of copies of John's cop, uh, gospel that we have, that these first 11 verses were, were added at some point later. And so some people say that's exactly what's going on here in the passage we're looking at this morning. Surely this must have been added later by someone who had an agenda and words that they wanted to put in Jesus's mouth. But there are some significant and important differences between this passage that we're looking at this morning um, and the first 11 verses of this chapter. First, the archaeological evidence does not suggest or even leave the door open at all uh, for some later addition, for this passage to have been added later. Manuscripts from all different directions uh, that they were sent agree that this passage is original and a part of the original account that John recorded. Second, the reason, of course, that people think that this passage must be illegitimate is that it does not seem consist consistent with Jesus' character as they understand it. He uses some very strong language in this passage, too strong, they argue. And these are not the sorts of things that Jesus would say, they think. It must be someone else's words that they've put into Jesus' mouth. But as we'll see, the words of this passage are consistent with Jesus' willingness to love people even when it is costly and involves telling them what they may not want to hear. These verses pick up in the middle of a conversation that is already in progress. Jesus has come uh, down to Jerusalem along with thousands of other Jewish people to observe an important Jewish holiday. Uh, Jesus, at the end of that uh, festival, stood up in the temple to teach, and people that witnessed uh, his teaching and, and heard from him were divided about what to make of, them, uh, of, of him. Some people thought that he was trustworthy and speaking the truth, and others were not so sure. And afterward, as this kind of debate kind of progresses, John notes that some people believed in him, and Jesus begins to talk directly to this group of people in verse 31. However, things begin to deteriorate pretty quickly when Jesus tells them that by abiding in his word, they will be set free. They don't like the suggestion that Jesus is making that they are not already free, and so tensions begin to rise. This crowd has approached Jesus. They've listened to him. They've even believed that he is speaking the truth to them, but what becomes apparent and clear pretty quickly is that what they really wanted from Jesus was not necessarily the truth. They wanted affirmation from him. They wanted someone to tell them how awesome they were. It's what lots of people want from Jesus. For him to simply say, keep on being amazing. Don't change a thing. You're amazing. Keep doing it. But that is not what Jesus came to do. So they begin to doubt him, and by verse 38, the opening of the verses that we're looking at more closely this morning, Jesus is pointing out the obvious to everyone, that they are not seeing eye to eye at all. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They have fundamentally different perspectives, which has led them in different directions, completely opposite directions, in fact. Abraham is our father, they say. They want to make it clear that their perspective must be superior to whatever perspective this new teacher is uh, teaching from, because in their eyes, they have the godly perspective. 
And this is the reason that they've begun to get frustrated with Jesus, because he's told them that he is the light of the world, which suggests that apart from him, everyone is living in darkness. He's told him that his words are the truth that will set people free, which suggests that they are living in captivity, and they want to make it clear to Jesus that they don't need anything from him. Who is this guy to come and lecture us about anything, is the question that they're asking. They're indignant that Jesus would suggest these things to them. They feel, and they will make it very clear in this passage, that they feel they are more godly and more honorable and ultimately more trustworthy than Jesus. When they heard him speaking in the temple, they were impressed with him. And they said, who can teach like this guy? Who, who has wisdom like this guy? But now that he's begun suggesting that they are lacking something, they are irritated with him. And so they want to stress this important point, that they have Abraham's blood running through their veins. It's the second time in this conversation that they've drawn a direct connection between themselves and Abraham, the patriarch of their faith. We learn about Abraham beginning in Genesis chapter 12. He was a man that God called out to, that God instructed to pack up his family and to move away from his home to a place that God would show him. And God promised that he would make his family, his descendants, numerous, and that they would grow into a great nation, and that through his descendants, through that nation, the whole world would be blessed. And so we read in Genesis 12, verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He heard God's command, he trusted God's promise, and he moved in faith. At the time, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they had no children at all, so God was going to have to change some things in order to keep his promises to them. But 25 years go by, no child is born. And so in Genesis 15, Abraham asks God, what's going on? Come on, you know, I mean, I thought you said something about lots and lots of kids. Here we are 25 years later, I got none, so just curious what's going on. And God tells Abraham to look up at the nighttime sky. And he says, number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. He's affirming, he's really doubling down on the promise that he's made to Abraham. Even though 25 years have gone by with no child. But then it says in verse 6, And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even though he had been waiting for 25 years, he kept on trusting in God's faithfulness, and that trust, that belief, was credited, counted to him as righteousness in God's eyes. But then another two decades go by, and Abraham and Sarah still have not had a child. Nearly 50 years they've been waiting. 50 years they've been waiting to have a child. They left everything that they knew and loved back in chapter 12, and now 50 years later, they're still waiting for God to keep his promise. And when he did, and their son Isaac was born, God proved himself trustworthy and faithful, and the process of nation-building and world-blessing was begun. This is our Father, these people say, the one who received promises from God and blessings and wisdom and protection from God. We are part of his family. And because of that, 
They don't think that they need anything from Jesus. They think they have everything that they need already. But Jesus is going to make very clear to them that though they may be genetic offspring of Abraham, they are not heirs of the promise that they think they are. Being born in the family line of Abraham has not guaranteed that they will become people of faith and belief like Abraham was. We, I think, intrinsically understand what's going on here. During the 18th century, Massachusetts was home to a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who I'm sure some of you have heard of. He was a noted pastor and theologian who many consider to be America's greatest philosopher and theologian and one of the all-around just most brilliant thinkers that has ever lived in this country. He was a Puritan and played a central role in the revival of faith during what has become known as the First Great Awakening while pastoring a little church here in Massachusetts. He was renowned for his brilliance and his unshakable faith. Yet, the strength of his faith did not guarantee that those who would come after him would share it or follow in his footsteps. Years later, his grandson would also come to a position of some prominence in this newly independent nation. He would go on to serve as a senator from New York and then as the vice president of the United States. However, he displayed none of the faith of his grandfather. When he was asked directly whether or not he even believed that God exists, he refused to give a straight answer. He was known for his salacious behavior. He was charged with murder for shooting someone in New Jersey. And he was later charged with treason for plotting to establish Texas as a new country over which he would serve as its emperor. He was driven by a passion to accumulate power and influence using any means necessary. And historical records and accounts from people that knew him make it very clear that the character of his grandfather and the faith of his grandfather couldn't be further from what characterized this young man. Aaron Burr was not the man of towering faith that his grandfather was because even though family lineage is important and certainly does play a vital role in shaping who we are in life, it does not determine our standing before God. This crowd that's standing in front of Jesus is convinced that they need nothing simply because they are genetically related to Abraham. But Jesus is about to burst that bubble. These people did not act like Abraham did. And so he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Jesus' point is clear. When God spoke, Abraham listened and obeyed. But now God is speaking in the person of his son, Jesus himself, and they refuse to hear and obey. Instead, Jesus points out, now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. But this is not what Abraham did. Their behavior stands in stark contrast to the one that they claim as their spiritual father. Back in Genesis 18, when Abraham and Sarah were still waiting for God to keep his promise and give them a son, they were startled one day to see three men standing outside their house. It's clear that Abraham understood that they were angelic beings of some sort sent by God, or at least two of them were. And he rushes around to roll out the red carpet by providing a meal and opening his home and asking, him, asking them to stay with him. 
But scholars debate who exactly the third person was in this, in this party that arrived at their house because the text uh, of Genesis 18 repeatedly re- refers to this third person using God's personal name to describe him. So regardless of what exactly is going on there and who it was uh, that showed up at Abraham and Sarah's doorstep, the point is clear. Abraham had eyes to see when God was standing right in front of him. When God was moving and when God was speaking, he listened and he welcomed him. But instead, for these people who are hearing the divine truth from God incarnate, they want to be rid of him. Unlike Abraham, they do not love God or his word. You are doing the works that your father did, Jesus says. Their actions and the animosity that is developing between themselves and Jesus have revealed the truth. Now, they don't like what Jesus is saying at all here or what he's implying. They've had issues with what Jesus is implying for this whole chapter because it strikes at their identity as a people. And so in verse 41, they lash out at him. We are not born of sexual immorality, they say. We have one father, and it is God himself. Our lineage is intact, they say. Why would they say this? Why would they make this comment? It seems a little like a non sequitur based on the conversation that's happening here. But I think the implication that they're making in response to Jesus is clear. We have no shameful secrets in our past, they suggest, though, that someone else does. Who are you to question us? The implication is clear. We were not born of sexual immorality like you were. So why should we listen to you lecture us about family and about obeying God and about faithfulness? This line in verse 41 suggests that there were rumors circulating about Jesus' birth and about his parents and about the fact that Mary and Joseph weren't married when she became pregnant. Never mind the fact that they are misinformed about the facts of Jesus' birth. Uh, It is a deflection from the conversation that Jesus is trying to have. They have found themselves backed into a corner, and they wanted to push the uncomfortable spotlight onto Jesus and off of themselves. They want to claim the moral high ground again and to feel better about themselves, and in so doing, avoid the hard work of soul-searching and dealing with sin. It's something that we do often, don't we? If we feel like someone else is a greater sinner, a worse person, a person who's made bigger mistakes than we have, then we are less likely to take our own sin seriously, aren't we? We justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to people that we think are doing worse than we are. But Jesus takes their accusation in stride and says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. He turns their cruel words into a statement about his identity, which they need to accept. Their confusion about his parentage reveals that they don't know God as well as they think that they do. If they did, they would love his son and they would love his word, but they do not. They can't understand it because, it's, it, not because it's hard to understand, but because they cannot bear to hear it. And what Jesus has to say next will be even harder for them to hear. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. This is a wildly offensive thing to say. I think 
we would all agree. And it's this verse that makes people question whether this passage is original and whether or not it actually reflects Jesus' character. Though, aside from the fact that all the archaeological evidence supports the authenticity of this passage and this verse as original and authentic to the original account that John recorded, we can see internally in this passage that it's consistent with Jesus' approach to this crowd. Just like he offered evidence explaining that they were not truly children of Abraham by pointing out that they have not walked in the footsteps of his faith and obedience, now he offers evidence that they are in fact children of the devil by pointing out that they have walked in his footsteps of corruption and deceit and rebellion against God. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, he says, which is likely a reference to the Garden of Eden in which the devil enticed Adam and Eve in order to bring death into the world. Likewise, the people in this crowd will shortly, at the very end of this chapter, pick up stones to murder Jesus. The devil has nothing to do with the truth, Jesus says, because there is no truth in him. And this is also likely a a reference to the Garden of Eden, where we see the the evidence or or the the fact that Jesus is uh, speaking the truth about the devil here, that there is no truth in him, because he lied in order to tempt Eve into sin. He lies, Jesus says, because it is in his nature. He is the father of lies. So his children naturally would follow in those footsteps of deceit, which they have. And when someone comes speaking the truth about God, about sin, and about humanity, when someone comes speaking the truth, they will reject it like they have. They will oppose it like they are, like they are doing right now. And so Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Not because it is doubtful, or because there are holes in Jesus' argument, not because it's illogical, not because he is a flawed messenger of the truth, but because it is the truth, and they have set themselves against it. They don't want to hear it because it is an uncomfortable reality, a devastating and honest examination of who they really are. It would be like watching a highlight reel of your whole life, But instead of all the best moments and the things that you want to remember, it's full of all the moments that you wish you could forget. All the mistakes, all the unkind words you wish you could take back, all the secret sins that you hope no one will ever find out about, no one would want to watch that highlight reel. Nobody would want to watch that. Nobody would want to deal with that or face it, that it was a part of our lives. Because I tell the truth, Jesus says, you reject me, because the truth is hard to face, not because I'm wrong. Jesus' credibility is intact. Which one of you convicts me of sin, he asks. And the fact that no one can produce any evidence of sin in Jesus does not soften their resolve to reject him and his message. The reason they don't believe and the reason they cannot receive the truth is that the situation is much, much worse than what they thought before. The reason why you do not hear is that you are not of God, he says in the last verse of our passage. I can't imagine a sentence that's more devastating than that one for the people in this crowd who understand their whole identity in light of their religious practice and tradition. It is a completely different picture of Jesus than we often have in our minds, I think. And for some people, that means that this 
cannot possibly have been something that Jesus actually said. Yet every piece of evidence points to its authenticity and even its consistency with Jesus's character because his love is big enough to speak the truth even when the truth is hard to face. I would imagine that one of the very hardest jobs in the whole world uh, would be to be a doctor who has to deliver bad news. Uh, some of you in this room may know what that's like to deliver bad news like that. Some of you uh, know what it's like to be on the other side of that conversation and to receive that bad news. I think it probably takes a special type of strength to sit down with people knowing that what you're about to tell them will make this the worst day of their lives. I'm sure it's a moment that everyone would rather skip, a conversation that they would rather just avoid. Everyone would love a doctor who only ever gave them good news. But when there's something wrong, what we need is the doctor who will have the hard conversation with us, who will sit down with us and give us the truth even if it's hard to hear. It would be terribly unloving for a doctor to know that something is wrong and to avoid telling you the truth in order to spare your feelings. Jesus loves these people. He loves them enough to tell them that something is terribly wrong. He loves them enough to tell them that everything they've put their trust in and built their lives on is crumbling beneath their feet. That they think that their eternity is safe because they've been born in the right country, is ultimately something that will disappoint them. Jesus is willing to speak the devastating truth that they are not at all the people of God that they think they are. Now, this leads us, I think, to an interesting question about what difference this passage makes for us in our lives today. Many people today, most people today, are not making the claims that these people in this passage in John 8, we're making that we are descendants of Abraham, that we have a direct lineage connecting us to Abraham, and so therefore our standing before God is secure because of that lineage. People, most of us are not making that argument or making that claim, but there are some critical observations I think we need to make and draw from this passage that are for all people in every context. First is that apart from Christ, there is only rebellion against God. This passage challenges the idea that we can serve and glorify God in any way other than by receiving and believing in His Son. The people in this passage had spent their lives in a culture that treasured religious practice and tradition and God's law. All the people who are involved in this conversation in, in, in John 8, all of them, are here in Jerusalem because they have made a pilgrimage to the city in order to observe a Jewish holiday, and to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. It would be ludicrous to say that these people are anything other than religiously devoted. Yet it's to this crowd that Jesus says, you are children of the devil. He's using shocking language here to jar this crowd into facing the truth that their religious practice has gotten them nowhere. And it's an important thing for all of us to realize that the good things we do and our good intentions can be twisted and corrupted and used for evil. They did want to know God. They wanted to be loved by God and they wanted to honor God. And these are all good desires. They read scripture. They worshiped in the temple. And as they point out, 
by trying to demonstrate their moral superiority to Jesus. They have done their best to avoid sin, like sexual immorality. Nothing about any of this is bad. But one of the devil's cleverest lies is convincing people that our good intentions are sufficient to satisfy a holy God. Years ago, when I was, I think, maybe like a freshman in high school, I went to a local conference for Christian students. And one of the activities that was a part of that little conference was that we were split into small groups of like four or five. And we went out into the neighborhood uh, in order to uh, to knock on doors and ask a simple question. And the question was, if the world ended today, do you think you would go to heaven? We approached people of all kinds of religious backgrounds, and even though a couple of people told us that they didn't believe in any kind of afterlife at all, the majority had the exact same answer, and I bet you can guess what it was. What it was. Almost everyone said, yes, I'll go to heaven. And so when we asked, why, why do you think that that is? The answer was almost always the same. And again, I bet you can guess what it was. Because I'm a good person. I try to be nice. I don't break the law. I, I help people. I donate to charity uh, to help people that are less fortunate than me. And of course, none of us would say that those are bad things. Of course, they aren't bad things. But the logic involved is the same as what these people in Jerusalem used when they talked with Jesus. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We are good people, so we don't need anything from you. But that confidence is misguided, as Jesus made very clear. Because as we saw last week in the passage that came just before this one, sin is a slave master that we cannot simply escape from by our own strength. It corrupts and condemns even the good things that we do. And we deceive ourselves if we think that coming to church or praying or tithing or serving the homeless or reading our Bibles or whatever it is that we would describe as being a good Christian will be enough to satisfy a holy God. It cannot save. It cannot redeem. Only Christ can do that. And apart from him, even the best things we do are a rebellion against him. Even our sincere efforts to be good people are stained by sin and corrupted. Secondly, coming to Christ involves coming to terms with our sin. That's an uncomfortable thing to do, of course. Even though all of us know that we do sin, and hopefully all of us would admit that, we don't like facing the honest truth about the way that God feels about our sin, and we don't like talking about it either. In a survey that was conducted last year of over 50,000 sermons from churches across America conducted by the Pew Research Center, it was observed that evangelical churches are the most likely to talk about sin and judgment, and the reality of hell. Uh, More than other branches of Christianity, evangelicals are more likely to address the ugly truth about the inward corruption of humanity and the just wrath of a holy God. However, before we get too proud of ourselves for feeling like, yeah, we're we're more likely to to take this head on and, and face the truth than everybody else, it was discovered in this survey that evangelical preachers only discuss these topics in one out of ten of the 50,000 sermons that were part of this survey. Meanwhile, God's love was specifically mentioned in 99% of those sermons. And that makes sense. We like talking about how much God loves us. It feels good. 
And we should like talking about how much God loves us. It's a remarkable and humbling thing and the root of our joy. But two problems arise when we avoid or neglect the truth of sin and the corruption that it brings. First, if we don't talk about sin, we will be like the people in this crowd. We will think that we don't actually need anything from Jesus at all. We will see him as a good teacher and a good example, but we will not see him as a savior. And passages that confront our sin or demand our obedience will begin to look questionable to us. And so we will avoid them. We will come to Jesus looking for affirmation rather than salvation. And we will want him to tell us that we are awesome, but not that we are slaves to sin. If we never face our need for a Savior, for liberation, from guilt and from sin, we will follow the Jesus of our imagination on the path to God's wrath. Secondly, if we don't talk about sin and get honest with ourselves about the reality of our guilt and God's righteous wrath, we will neglect the sheer magnitude of God's love, which seems like a paradox. If we only ever talk about God's love, we will ultimately neglect how truly incredible it is. A king who is surrounded by doting subjects does experience their admiration and their respect. He experiences their affection. But it's only after that king has been cast out to live on the street will he know whether any of those subjects truly love him. The hard truth is that every one of us is a peasant in our sin, cast out and living on the street. But God's love for us has compelled him to search us out in our squalor and to love us as though we were royalty. If we refuse to accept our need for Jesus and our guilt before him, we will not understand his love for us at all. We will think that he loves us because we are good and because we are lovely, not because he is love at his core. Being honest about our sin and facing the fact that we need a Savior will bring us to the life-giving, soul-gratifying gospel truth of God's love for those who, in their sin, were enemies of his glory and rebels against his holiness and children of the devil. His love is truly magnificent, and that is something we will never grasp until we realize the depth of our guilt and the even greater depth of his love for us. Lastly, this morning, the love of Christ is for everyone who comes to him in faith. One of the things that the people in this crowd in John 8 failed to understand was the nature of Abraham's relationship with God. On the day that God first called out to Abraham, he was just like everyone else on earth. And Joshua 24, 2 makes clear to us that Abraham was worshiping idols, the gods of the region that his family had always worshipped. He didn't love God. He wasn't faithful to God. He was an idol worshiper. Yet God calls out to him with a promise of blessing. It cannot possibly have been because Abraham deserved God's affection and promise more than anyone else. It was because, in his sovereignty, God had appointed Abraham to be the recipient of his grace and affection, despite Abraham's sin. Abraham didn't earn anything. The only thing that he earned was judgment for his sin. 
So all that he has to give God is faith and obedience, which, as we've already seen, is what he gave, though he certainly was not perfect. The leaders of the early church understood that those who likewise receive God's promise of grace and affection should turn toward him just as Abraham did. It's a point we see all over the book of Romans. Romans 9 makes clear that not all who are, dis- not all who are descended from Abraham are his spiritual descendants. Verse 8 says specifically, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, that is to, which is to say those who are genetically linked uh, to Abraham by bloodlines who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. In chapter 4, uh, Paul proclaims that Abraham was made the father of those who walk in the footsteps of faith. And in Galatians 3, Paul makes this point again, saying all are one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. The love of God is abundant and transcendent and powerful, and it is for everyone who receives it by faith in Christ alone. That's the message of this book, the book of John as a whole, and what John hopes we will understand once we've finished reading it. It's how he opened the book in chapter 1 and how he introduced everyone who reads this book, to Jesus, when he said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The promise of the gospel and the hope of the apostle John is that we will become members of God's household, not by bloodlines, or by our will and effort, by our determination to have the moral high ground, but by the will of God to fulfill the promise of redemption which we receive by faith. So our hope this morning is in Christ alone to do what we never could. And the question that this passage raises is not whether we were born into the right family or whether or not we have the strength to save ourselves by throwing off the chains of sin, but whether we will hear and obey the voice of God in His Son, calling us to repentance and faith. Whether we will yield when He tells us that we are moving toward destruction, and whether we will trust that His words of rebuke are truly words of, the, of love for those who are lost. We will be tempted to believe the lies from the devil that tell us that we do not need Him. But by God's grace, we will have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and hearts to receive the gospel in faith. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful for the book of John, and we are thankful for passages like this one in chapter 8 that challenge and convict us and remind us of our truly deep need for you and for your love and mercy and grace. God, we know that um, we are tempted every day to believe the lie that we do not need you. And so we ask that you would break uh, that temptation in our hearts, that you would uh, give us strength to hear and obey this word calling us to faith in your Son, and that you would give us strength to repent and turn toward you uh, in faith, like our spiritual father Abraham did. Um, God, we are grateful to have been grafted into the household that you establish by faith, and we ask this morning that you would give us hearts that are truly full of joy for your work in our lives. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.